I'll tell you where it's gone too far. And I have to be the person to say this. This is a really good comedy bit by Jack Whitehall. For the love of God, we have got enough milks now. <laughs> Would everyone stop milking shit? <laughs> I was like, hello, I'd like a white coffee, please. Okay, sir, what kind of milk would you like with your coffee? We've got a coconut milk, we've got an almond nut milk, we've got a hazelnut milk, we've got a cashew nut milk, we've got a macadamia nut milk, we've got an oat milk, rice milk, hemp milk, soy milk, you can have it from a bean, from a pulse, from a nut, from a grain, from an oat, from a flax, from a leaf, from a seed, from a tree. And mycelium, and yeast, and bacteria, and cells, well, Good that Jack doesn't listen to Red to Green. He would get a heart attack. The milk made from engineered yeast. Welcome to the season final on biotech and food. And I have something very special for you. Do you know that feeling of listening to an audiobook or podcast and after 15 minutes wondering, what did I just hear? The information just washed through your brain like a lukewarm growth medium and you're not sure whether you crew any more brain cells. <laughs> well, there's a way to change that. It's called active recall. And in this episode, I want to try a podcast format that I have never seen before, but I think it could be super useful. So let me give you a bit of context. I recently moved from Berlin to Lisbon and started learning European Portuguese. And I came across a learning methodology developed by Paul Pimsler. It's based on listening to audio, but not passively. Instead, it asks one to interact. As someone approaches you with botant to the bane, what do you answer? And then the audio pauses to let you answer out loud or in your head. And I absolutely love this format. So in this episode, we will summarize the key takeaways of the whole season together. You can see it as a quiz to test your knowledge and maybe send it to a few colleagues where you want to check whether they know what they're talking about. <laughs> and also a way to find out which topics you still want to look into more deeply. For each episode, I will ask you a question or two, give you some time to answer it uh, so you don't need to stop the audio. And then I share how I would answer the question. Even if you don't come up with the answer, the act of trying to recall information and engaging your memory already helps to change from I heard something somewhere to oh, I actually learned something to solidify it. As a side note, if you work in the biotech industry and the food industry, you may be able to answer these questions without having heard the individual episodes. If you are not familiar with the food tech space, and you haven't listened to the season, this may be like reading the end of a biology book or something, you know, it can be insightful, but it can also be a lot of information to take in. Just warning you, okay? <laughs> but with that, let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. 
In episode one, the introduction, we also looked at the bigger context of biotechnology. It is much bigger than the food aspect that we discussed in this season. So either answer this out loud or answer this question in your head. What are other industries or areas that use biotechnology? In the first episode, Irina, Gary, my interview guest, shared a few examples like COVID vaccines, insulin, and different biomaterials. And recently, I came across a very useful way of categorizing biotechnology into red, green, white, and blue biotechnologies. Of course, I love this categorization, duh. <laughs> so let's go through all of these four, and I would invite you as you hear them, or when you hear green biotechnology, to really think about what are your actual associations with the color and how they connect to the fields that are described by it. Green biotechnology includes the agricultural or environmental use of biotech. For example, herbicide-resistant crops, Bt cotton, or any inherently insect-resistant crops, as well as crops that are genetically engineered to be drought-tolerant. Red biotechnology. RED stands for medical biotechnology. This could be used for vaccines, antibodies, antibiotics, stem cells, and gene therapy. White biotechnology. White biotech is about materials and industrial uses. And sometimes food biotechnology is included here as well. An example of that is PLA. And I love that because <laughs> we covered plastic alternatives and PLA in the second season of Red to Green. And you can find out about PLA in episodes 2.10 and 2.11, still absolutely relevant. Fun fact, PLA is typically made from sugars in cornstarch, cavassa, or sugarcane. And I love to find out that that process actually also includes fermentation. The last major area is blue biotechnology. Blue Biotech focuses on aquatic organisms, explores the oceans, and it looks into the marine to develop novel pharmaceutical drugs, chemical products, enzymes, or other industrial products. Think about three to four different types of fermentation that we covered in this season. organized from the most traditional to the most futuristic microbial slash traditional fermentation, then biomass fermentation, precision fermentation, and gas fermentation. Now let's look at them in more detail. In the first episode, we described precision fermentation. Imagine you are on a panel with me and I ask you this. How would you explain this process if you wanted to make cheese from precision fermentation? An example answer could be, you genetically engineer microbes to produce whey protein. Quite often these are yeast. These yeasts are grown in a nutrient broth, 
which uh, mostly includes sugars. And then they spew out the protein, they're separated in a downstream process, and then you can just apply artisanal methods of cheese making to produce a cheese. We are mostly talking about alternative proteins and using the example of dairy, but that's just to compare these different approaches. Especially precision fermentation can create such a variety of ingredients. You can create colorants, you can create egg proteins like the Every Company, or bioactive proteins like Helena. So if you have infant formula, there are certain compounds and infant formula that are missing, which are actually important for a baby to build the immune system. And with precision fermentation, you can create these bioactive compounds, which are hard or even impossible to get from dairy milk. It also always depends on whether what you're replacing has been made chemically before, like a lot of colorants or also a lot of artificial flavors. For example, the vanilla extract that usually isn't natural because it's very expensive to have vanilla plantations. So if that is made using precision fermentation, this is uh, potentially a more natural approach than using artificial flavors. But yeah, let's move on to episode two. What are the two main types of biomass fermentation? There's liquid and solid-state biomass fermentation. Liquid biomass fermentation needs a fermenter or bioreactor. Solid-state uses a solid substrate, for example, trays filled with barley where a fungus grows. This is also the same method used to, for example, make tempeh, which has been around for a long time. So actually, if you would think about what is actual biotechnology, microbial fermentation and I also think biomass fermentation aren't really a part of that. I did include them in this season because we covered so much fermentation. Might as well cover everything, huh? <laughs> and the beautiful thing about biomass fermentation is it likely has an easier time to get through the regulatory approval process. And it's also really a whole product, right? So it's not just an ingredient that you're producing. An example of a company that does that is Bosque Foods from Berlin. And I actually met Isabella Iglesias Musashio at an event by Provech last year. They were hosting a conference. And at the conference, uh, she said on stage, the exposure that she gets from media to events because of the Provech incubator is exceptional. So if you have your own alt protein company on any method to replace animal products in the food chain, the ProVeg Incubator is a really fitting non-profit accelerator. All funds are reinvested in the charitable work of ProVeg. They've worked with 80 plant-based startups on their program, and you can participate in the ProVeg Incubator's program remotely from anywhere in the world and get up to 300k to boost your alt protein company. This is not just an accelerator or an investor, but a global organization with partners across industries spanning both commercial and non-for-profit. I've heard from a founder 
that especially if you're interested in having contacts in the European ecosystem, the ProVetch incubator has a big advantage right there. Grab your chance to build a company for a better world. They are accepting applications all year around. Check out the ProVetchIncubator.com, ProVetchIncubator.com. If you look at liquid biomass fermentation, that sounds quite similar to precision fermentation. Both methods use bioreactors. And there are some microbes floating and some nutrient broth. So what is the difference between biomass and precision fermentation? Precision fermentation involves genetic engineering, but liquid biomass fermentation generally doesn't. In precision fermentation, the microbe and what you're actually trying to produce are separated. So the microbe is just your machinery that spews out what you're actually after. Whereas in biomass fermentation, the microbes are part of the product. That also explains why the end products of these two processes are very different. Precision fermentation is great for individual compounds if you want something like rennet to curdle cheese or whey the milk protein or a specific fat like omega-3. Biomass fermentation usually produces more complex whole ingredients with a mix of proteins, fats and carbs. Note that yeasts are part of the fungi kingdom and then it all is part of the microbes definition. So let's keep going to episode three. What is the number one quality that makes gas fermentation different from all other fermentation methods? It doesn't require agricultural inputs. Gas fermentation works with some of the most resilient microbes, like the coolest kids on the block. Now, in the example that we covered, which is the technology of Archeon, they're using a type called archaea. So these are microorganisms which are similar to bacteria and size, but, but work radically different. The feedstock can also be different. It can be nitrogen and CO2, like in the example of Archeon. But other companies are working on using methane, for example. And the end product can be alt proteins, but it can also be alternative fuels. It's certainly an interesting approach using microbes that can survive even the toughest conditions. In episode four, we took a step back and looked at traditional microbial fermentation. Consider actually formulating your response silently or out loud. I do believe active recall is the best way to develop one's brain, <laughs> to cover the basics, right? What does fermentation actually mean? Fermentation is a process in which sugars are used to generate energy for living cells. So it's just the gnom-gnom for microorganisms, right? Because <laughs> they also need to eat something. And 
which microorganisms are fermenting and what their byproduct is defines the fermentation type. Another definition is the chemical breakdown of a substance by bacteria, yeast, or other microorganisms. Chemical breakdown! I'm sorry, I had to do it. Okay, so um, let's, let's just keep going before I keep singing. <laughs> there are three main types of traditional fermentation. Lactic acid, ethanol, and acetic acid fermentation. Sounds very fancy, right? But these are actually happening in our daily food products. If you let your mind wonder, what kind of products of fermentation do you have in your life? Like to eat yourself and which would you maybe like to eat more? So a few examples for lactic acid fermentation are yogurt, sauerkraut and kimchi. I personally recently found out that I'm born lactose intolerant. Woohoo! I can recommend everybody to do the test. Apparently 5 to 15% of the population are lactose intolerant. But yeah, I have never gotten the hang of kimchi. I'm a sauerkraut kid. <laughs> and the ethanol fermentation, of course, leads to beer and wine. Kombucha is actually also an ethanol fermentation, but it's usually stopped before it becomes very alcoholic. And acetic acid fermentation leads to vinegar. Then off we go to episode 5, cells as machinery. We went from traditional fermentation to the most sci-fi, the most futuristic topic of the season. What would that approximately look like if you want to produce milk by growing cells? How would cells produce milk? From all of the different approaches we talked about, this one is the most advanced, like far into the future. <laughs> But it's interesting to understand how it would theoretically work to create cell-based milk, right? So you need to grow the mammary glands. So these are the organs usually located on the chest for women, because you can also create human milk with this, or for the cow to create cow's milk in the udder. Udder is such a funny word. You grow these glands and the specific ones which are actually adhesive. So they stick to a membrane, they grow in a membrane. And then these glands are also swimming in a nutrient broth. So they have what they need to actually produce the milk. And the milk um, is then excreted through the membrane onto the other side. So you really separate the tissue from the milk product. If you are enjoying this episode and learning something, think about one smart person you know who could be interested in this biotech quiz. Please take a minute to forward this episode to them. Each episode takes 20 plus hours of research and editing, so it's super, super appreciated. Alternatively, you can also share this episode and a takeaway on LinkedIn. Obrigada, thank you. Fire round. Which of these two approaches that we discuss use genetic engineering? Precision fermentation or molecular farming? 
Well, it's a trick question. It's both. So let's move on to episode six on molecular farming. How would it look like to produce milk proteins and cheese with molecular farming? So you would genetically engineer the plant to produce milk proteins, then extract the protein and make it into cheese. It's a bit similar to precision fermentation, but also different in a, in a few very important parameters. The leftovers of the GMO plant are processed into other foodstuff. I know molecular farming is being hyped right now, but of all these technologies, I feel the most uneasy about it. And that certainly doesn't mean that it is bad by default, but I do think that the amount of potential risk and hazard to potential outcome is not as favorable as with some of the other approaches. In the following season, already launching in April, woo, damn, tight timelines. <laughs> we summarize key sustainability takeaways from books on the food system. And you will understand why I feel so split about it when you listen in. So make sure to subscribe to stay in the loop. Episode 7. This is an open-ended question. Journalist Larissa Zimbarov criticized the ingredientization of the industry. What does that mean and what do you associate with that? We treat food like it's blocks of macro and micronutrients that we can disassemble and reassemble. So we extract the proteins, take out the vitamins or fats and ship them across various continents while they are built into new products. Many biotech startups create a more efficient ingredient, but do they contribute to making the food system healthier? So to give you a little break from answering all these intrusive questions, I'll just highlight an insight. In episodes 8 and 9, you heard of two entrepreneurs working on plant-based replacements for cacao and honey. Win-Win follows the approach many other plants taste or can be made to taste like cacao. So they look at cacao's taste and texture profile and replicate it from different sources using fermentation. Melibio has another approach, because there are already vegan honey substitutes. And Darko argued, you don't find rice syrup in actual honey. So they follow the method, what is honey made of? And how can we find identical components from plant-based sources? It's not like one approach is more right or wrong. Based on the top-down and bottom-up analogy, I would call win-win strategy a taste-down approach. You know, you start with the taste, the end, and then you work your way down to the actual ingredients. And Melibio's strategy and ingredients-up approach, focusing on replicating the fundamentals, what honey consists of, and then the taste follows accordingly. Got excited to build something cool? Then I think you should check out the program by Food Labs, the leading European food VC. 
They are teaming up with their sister fund Atlantic Labs to launch a Founders for Climate program. This is the kind of program you need if you're starting out, including giving you pre-seed funding for your incorporated company, the mentoring and advisory, potentially the office space and access to the network, including 150 portfolio companies. Food Labs as a venture studio can offer your support in setting up the finances and the recruiting side and the PR side of your business. So check out foodlabs.com and you'll find their founders for climate program on foodlabs.com. So why is it so hard to scale it for food production? In previous use cases, you only needed tiny amounts of product produced. The price and margins are very high, for example, if you're producing growth factors, so the bioreactor size can also be small. For food applications, the margins are way lower, so you need to bring the cost down, which means scaling. And scaling a bioreactor, also known as a fermenter, is really challenging. So here's an add-on to that. I once heard the founder of the note-taking app Evernote describe this great concept of breaking when tripling. So when you start a company with one person, well, I mean, you are the one person. <laughs> you set up systems and once the team grows and you have three people, everything breaks. The way you do project management and meeting culture has to adjust. And that happens again when your team triples to nine people. For the ease of counting, he rounds it up to 10. Legal, compliance, task division, all need to be adjusted. These breaking points also happen at 30, 100, 300, and 1,000. You get me, right? Uh, I have a theory. Something similar may be going on when scaling bioreactors. And the metric is probably not the same. But imagine you have a small medium bioreactor and you triple the size and boom, everything seems to need adjustment. So I'm not an engineer, but I am a technology historian. So I derived that theory from the history of fertilizer. And I think it's super interesting for anyone in the field uh, to understand how the Haber-Bosch process was developed, actually how it got scaled. Back then, fixating ammonia from the air seemed impossible, if not downright insane. They needed to create these vessels that would withstand pressures a thousand times higher than was possible at the beginning of the 20th century. And whenever they scaled the vessels to a certain degree, they would need to remodel the system because everything seemed to break down. BASF, a German chemical company, funded this process certainly drudgingly, because the board was unhappy that it took way longer than expected. But scaling massive fundamental hardware takes time. It is not software, right? And BASF really cashed out on this investment. So my book recommendation for anyone working with bioreactors is The Alchemy of Air. It's a biography and you can get it on Audible. Hearing about the struggles of developing the vessels and how they overcame the hurdles is surely an inspiration and an empathetic pat on the back for anyone angrily tinkering with a non-performing bioreactor. <laughs> 
So let's keep going with the next episode, episode 11. We are approaching the finish line. In this episode, I talk to Christian, who is partner at the Venture Builder and VC firm Food Labs. We talked about the hurdles of cell-based companies. Because there's so little public research, companies need to do a lot of groundwork themselves. We mentioned this a couple of times already throughout the seasons. But often, the companies can't share their findings with direct competitors. So how could it still be possible to achieve industry collaboration? Do you remember anything Christian said about that? Christian's answer was that they can connect to companies working on parts of the process. That includes the ones working on media or growth factors, for example. To get to the finale, wait, I think, I don't think you call it this way, finale. <laughs> But okay, we're at the finale and it's episode 12, regulatory hurdles. What is the difference between the novel food approval process in Europe versus the US and Singapore. Maybe you can come up with at least three main differences. So in the US and Singapore, it's easier for startups to collaborate with the regulator. There's more transparency from the regulators regarding the process, and overall, it's faster. In Europe, the process is also investigated, so how you produce these novel products. One side note, though, it's great for a food tech startup that a regulator is more open for collaboration and discussion. However, it may sometimes also be the basis for very questionable approvals in the US, Way more additives and food products are approved first and then retracted later due to human health hazards. If you want to hear a fascinating example of that, check out the final of our food history season, 5.12 on pink slime and ammonia used in meat. Fun fact or worrisome stat, depending on where you live. <laughs> a super interesting study from 2019 found that pesticides banned in the EU account for more than a quarter of all pesticide use in the US. You'll find the link to the study in the show notes. It all has pros and cons, right? So definitely the European regulation is too bureaucratic and inefficient in ways that are unnecessary. But as a consumer, I'm personally happy with the precautionary principle. I am so curious whether you went through this and actually took some time to think about the questions and whether that helped you or whether you even said it out loud. Please let me know. I would love to hear your feedback. Write me on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. If you enjoyed the season, There are also a couple of other ones. We produce content like audiobooks with a focus on making it evergreen. So season one about cellular agriculture is still relevant and you can still learn something from it, as well as season two about plastic alternatives, season three about the consumer acceptance of novel foods, 
and season four about food waste. And our last one was on lessons from food history, also a really fun one. A big thank you to the entire Red to Green team. Check out their profiles on our website, redtogreen.solutions. And my last quiz of this season is fill in the blanks. Moving the food industry from harmful to... From polluting to... From red to... (laughs) Hear you soon!